Welcome to the Unfiltered Podcast with me, Joe Warner, and powered by Ultimate Performance, the world's premier personal training experience that delivers maximum results in minimum time. In each episode of the Unfiltered Podcast, I interview the most respected, celebrated, and controversial experts in the fields of health, fitness, nutrition, well-being, and performance to help you find the life-changing advice you need to live smarter. Remember, you can find all of our exclusive Unfiltered documentaries, video interviews, and investigations at unfilteronline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. And now, on with the show. Ben, I was hoping we could start by talking about cystic fibrosis because I think it's an illness that a lot of people will be aware of, but they won't really know the intricacies of, of, of what it is and what it's like to live with. Are you okay to give me an overview um, about it and also how it impacts your daily life? Of course, life? yeah. Uh, that, that's kind of the position I've put myself in. So anyone, ta- any time anyone asks me to talk about it, I'm more than happy to because the issue with illnesses, especially kind of rare illnesses, there's only 100,000 people in the world with cystic fibrosis. If people don't know what it is, it's hard for them to relate to it. You know, everyone knows cancer. Everyone's been unfortunately affected by cancer. So it's very easy for people to donate their time, their money to something like that because it's it's close to home. Here comes Ollie. Um, so I, my, my part of this is really, you know, if I can help educate more people on cystic fibrosis, I'm happy to. So cystic fibrosis is a genetic illness. So you're born with it. It takes two carriers of the cystic fibrosis gene to then have a child with cystic fibrosis. So my parents, my mom and dad both had the, car- the carrier gene but I was actually the middle child. So my older brother didn't get it. He's a carrier. My younger sister didn't get it, but she's a carrier. And I was the lucky one. I got uh, I got both copies of the gene. Um, so cystic fibrosis mainly affects the production of mucus within the body. So someone without cystic fibrosis, the mucus in their body is a lot like water in a jar. So if you move that jar around, the water's going to move very freely around that jar. Some with cystic fibrosis, it's like swapping that out for... PVA glue or wallpaper paste. It basically clogs up a lot of the major systems within the body. The way I explain it to people is it's like oil in a car. The oil in the car keeps everything running smoothly. And uh, yeah, I don't have the, I don't have the same oil as everyone else. So digestion is affected a lot by that. And the main unfortunate cause of death within cystic fibrosis is the deterioration of the lung tissue because that bacteria that you get whenever you get a chest infection or anything like that, it makes a home in that mucus. It's very, very difficult for that mucus to let go or get the bacteria to get out of that mucus because of its nature of being very thick and sticky. And then that bacteria sits there and it then destroys the lung tissue permanently. You do that over and over and over again and eventually someone is essentially without lungs and they require a lung transplant. And of course, that's not a simple process. Getting someone to donate lungs, them to be suitable, your body to not reject them, there's a myriad of problems that come alongside of that, um, which is, yeah, it's the main main cause of death within the cystic fibrosis community. Obviously, there's a, a lot of other, you know, issues that come with cystic fibrosis, as you can imagine, but that is the main one. As far as my life goes and how it affects me, I honestly would love to be able to tell you how it makes me different to everyone else, but this is something I've had my entire life. I don't know any different. I just know what I know, and that's all I can speak to, but... Honestly, my parents, whoop, there's Ollie trying to sit in my lap. My parents did a fantastic job of raising me to not see it as a hindrance or a, a crutch. They raised me in a way that, look, you've got this thing. Your brother and your sister don't have this. 
none of your friends have this. This is just, this is something you have. We just need to look after it. But once we've done what we need to do in terms of taking medication and doing physio and going to the hospital and doing all those things, they just let me be a normal boy. Like they just let me be a normal little child and run around and play with my friends. And they did, um, they did a fantastic job of that. And, uh, I'm, 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 anytime I get a chance to thank them, even though they probably don't hear or see any of this stuff, they're not on social media. I, I always like to do it because it means as you get older, you realize your parents are just, they're just making stuff up really. And they were not in an age of the internet. They just were getting, you know, newspaper clippings and things that people would send them. And then obviously the doctors just telling them what they thought. So yeah, I, I owe a huge amount to my parents for setting me up with such a good platform for me to then, you know, launch off um, the rest of my life with. But I mean, that, that, what I said earlier, they, they turned something that could have easily been a crutch. And I don't know, you know, I'd love to be able to tell you exactly how my mindset has been created, but you know, it's just like anything. It's just a mixing pot of a lot of experiences and, you know, um, different conversations and all those things. So it's been, I would love to be able to pinpoint exactly why I have the mindset I have, but I, I, I would definitely attribute a lot of that to my parents and, um, yeah. So my life with cystic fibrosis, again, it's different for everyone. It's a genetic illness. So there's a myriad of mutations. I have the most uh, common one. So I have the F delta 508 times two. So I've got two copies of that F delta 508 um, gene that affects 50% of the population with cystic fibrosis. Um, yeah, I can only ever speak to my experience with cystic fibrosis, but growing up, it was something I was aware of but my parents did a fantastic job of managing that and making sure it never became overwhelming. And then that then just transitioned in my adult, adult life. Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah, it's not a fun illness. It's it's not a, it, the, the problem I have with me talking about cystic fibrosis, is I hope that people don't see me as the poster boy for cystic fibrosis because the reality is it's killing people every day. It's taking people away who are five, six years old and I hope that my, you know, my introduction to cystic fibrosis doesn't make people think, oh, well, it couldn't be that bad. I have done a lot of work to keep myself in the position of health that I'm in. But then there's also a side that I honestly, I don't like to admit, but there's a side of luck. There, there, ha There is a side of luck that I have to always kind of acknowledge, but I will never let that be the dictator of what I do going forward. I will always make sure that I'm always in a position of, look, you, no one has a hand on, no one has two hands on the wheel of life. If I can get one loose grip on it with the things that I can control, I'm going to do that. But there is a, a, you know, definitely a component of luck. And, and again, I attribute that luck to me being born to my parents. You know, my dad was, had a fantastic background in health and fitness from, you know, a, a police and then um, military background. And then my mum was a nurse. So I, it's only when I got older that I realized not everyone is as fortunate as that, as, as I am with that. Um, so yeah, that's always my In terms of what you can control, obviously yeah. health and fitness has yeah. been something you've done your entire life. And when I've spoken to you before, you said it's just like brushing your teeth. It's just something you do. Can you talk a little bit about what your day looks like now in terms of how you have to manage CF alongside training and obviously trying to do as much as you can to be in the best health possible? Honestly, it doesn't look much different to anyone else. And that's the mindset I tried to take forward, you know, whenever I realized, okay, I am slightly different to everyone else. Okay. Yeah. Ollie is insisting on getting son. You need to, this is, this is not the time to sit in my lap. 
It's not the time. Um, yeah, okay, so he's not he's not having that. Two seconds. Well, here we go. Here's Ollie. Um, yeah, so my my approach is always okay. What would I what would I do if I didn't have cystic fibrosis? What would I be doing? How would I look after myself? How would I train? How would I? And I I did that for very consciously at about age eighteen because I was training with my friends. We just all did the same thing. And as far as I was concerned, if you walked into the gym and you saw, you know, all of us training, you would never pick me out as being the one that had the illness, you know, never the one that didn't have to take medication. You know, I, that was the mindset I, I took. Um, so in terms of what I do and what my day looks like, I get up, go to the gym. I try and get my gym sessions done earlier in the morning now, just to get them out of the way. Take this little man out for his, for his W. I can't say it on camera because he'll freak out. Yeah, I'll take it. You'll think I'm taking him out for another one. Um, I, I typically, again, this is this is my routine. This is not, you know, what needs to happen. This is just very specific to me. And I'm always cautious of stuff like this. Um, I don't typically eat before I train because I'm not hungry in the morning. Most, you know, 50% of people aren't. I'm one of those people. Hunger's not been a, a huge thing for me. So I'll wait until I've trained. Then I'll get my food. And I, I'm, I'm, basically, I'm still trying to establish a good habit and routine for myself. Um, and that's something I'm always trying to work on. But the fundamentals are always there. I try and do some form of activity, even if that's just going out for a W. <laughs> it's like a swear word in this house. You can't say it. Um, or some form of relaxation, because one of the things that I think a lot of people dismiss when it comes to this is recovery is just as important, if not more important, than what you're doing, your output and your stress. If your body cannot handle the stress coming in because your lack of attention to your recovery, it's like paddling with one oar in a boat. You're just going around in circles. And that's the analogy I I said a while ago. Um, you know, recovery and training. If you've got one, you're just you're in a boat. You're just paddling around in circles. You need both to then be able to propel yourself forward. So is that something you've got to be more aware of, Ben? Do you have to almost prioritize recovery in a way that maybe other guys your age probably would put it on the back burner a little bit? I would say so. Sleep has always been a priority for me from day dot. I have always been, uh, you know, it was, it was something that my parents used to, because my dad was in the military, my mum was a nurse, they were up at the crack of dawn. They still are. And I didn't, I was never that person. I'm not a morning person at all. Um, so my sleep was always a priority. Even when I was young and I was like 17, my friends would be going out to not drink because that's illegal, you know, go and party. If I was working the next day early, which would have been early, it would have been like 6am. I worked in a news agent. I wouldn't go out. I'm like, nope, I'm not waking up. I'm not going out, staying up until two or three and then only getting three hours of broken sleep and then trying to wake up at 6am the next day. I'm not doing that. So that's something I've done throughout my entire life. Uh, so sleep has always been a huge priority for me. And again, it's something that I, I've always treated it like if I'm doing this, this is realistically what most people should be doing. I've never treated myself in that way as different to anyone else. Everything I do, realistically, most people would benefit from doing. But I think I obviously have to put a little bit more emphasis into it. You mentioned your upbringing and how your parents didn't, to use the phrase, kind of put you in cotton wool, which I imagine for a lot of parents would be almost your knee-jerk reaction because you're heightened risk of infection that, you know, a lot of other kids would just be able to fight off. Obviously, for you, it's a much more serious matter. 
Um, what's your what would your advice be, Ben, to to, to parents of children who or, or, or young adults who maybe do have some kind of condition, whether or not it's very rare or, or more common? Is it? Do you know? I know you can't necessarily give specific advice, but do you would you absolutely rate the opportunities you had to just be treated as as one of the other kids and, and not be not be packaged up in cotton wool? One hundred percent. The advice I give most people in this situation, because I, I do get a lot of people with other illnesses that come to me. I'm not, you know, I'm not a doctor. I can never give medical advice. I can just t- tell them what I think would work for me or if I was in their situation, what maybe I would do. But my my entire process is do whatever needs to be done. If that's taking medication, if that's going to the doctors, if that's, you know, doing physio, whatever it is. Once it's done, put it aside. And just live your life however you want to live. And that's how I've managed to, you know, live a relatively normal life. I don't know what is classified as normal. Even then, I probably wouldn't say I'm in a normal, I have had a normal life at all. But it's, once it's done, it's done. Put it to the side. Don't let it leak into any other parts of your life. And that's honestly the best, the best advice I can give you and give anyone that just do what you need to do. Yes, it sucks. Yes, it's unfortunate. But there's no other, there's no other path that you can take. If crying and moaning and feeling sorry for myself cured my cystic fibrosis, I'd be balled up in a corner crying my eyes out, but it's not going to. That's the reality of it. No one's going to come and save you. No one's going to come and help you. You have to put in the work and yeah, it sucks. But the alternative for me is not even worth thinking about. So yeah, just do what needs to be done. Once it's done, set it aside and don't let it leak into anything else in your life. Be be more than just your condition or your illness. You've mentioned that you don't want to be the poster boy for cystic fibrosis, but through what you've done and the way you look, I mean, it's impossible for you not to be, right? Whether whether or not you like it or not, you you have been such an inspiration to not only so many kids with CF, but also their parents who are probably struggling to kind of communicate to their kids and, and obviously want to give them the best possible upbringing. How do you deal with the pressure that inevitably comes from from being on a pedestal in, in people's eyes? Is it something that always kind of lifts you up or is it something you have to manage because in, inevitably you're dealing with some incredibly sad situations? It's a it's a mix of both, but I would say it definitely leans more towards just sheer appreciation for the position I'm in. I'm not a perfect human by any stretch of the imagination. No one is no one's perfect. No one's a hero. That's that's the I appreciate it more than I could ever express that people do put me in this position. It honestly means the world to me, but I'm a normal person. There's nothing special about me in, in really any way. Like if you watch me, you'd probably get bored out of your mind to watch me or just get annoyed and leave. But there is a huge amount of pressure that can and does come with that in that sense that, you know, I, I have eyes on me that I'm not even aware that are on me in terms of little little kids, you know, their parents. And I always have to be very careful with how I, th- how I say things, how I word things, because I am in a position that I do have a lot of sway and I have a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of influence. Staying away from the, that, the, the dreaded word, but I have a lot of influence on people. And I, I take that, very seriously in the terms of how I conduct myself, how I try to conduct myself. But honestly, it gives me, it gives me a, a, a target to aim for as my, as a person, you know, these people hold me up on this pedestal, which I don't deserve. Like I, I genuinely don't, but it gives me a, okay. If I, if I'm, if I'm ever in a situation where 
maybe my body's like, nah, yeah, you don't want to do this. You don't want to do this. I do it for the people who would expect me to do that. And that helps me in situations. So again, just like it could be a crutch, but I turned it into a bit of a weapon for myself to, to make sure that I'm, you know, doing the things I need to do. The, but honestly, the, the impact that I can have on parents that I think that means the most to me. And, um, I actually did as part of the, the interview that I was telling you about with channel four, I got to sit down with my parents, both of them individually and together and have conversations with them that you'd only be privy to if you'd passed away, which was unbelievable. I mean, the, it was actually my friend who was direct, who was shooting it for me. One of my best friends, he got to work on the project with me. I suggested him and channel four were like, yep, hire him. Cool. He's in Northern Ireland. That's brilliant. Saves us from flying over, saves us a lot of money. I got to work with one of my best friends, but he was asking questions to my parents that, as I said, I would never usually be in the room to hear their answer. Things like, you know, why are you proud of Ben? Did, did Ben grow up to be what you thought he was going to be? How does, you know, all those things. But one thing that really struck me was when we were talking with my dad, my dad's a very, I learned a lot from my dad. My dad's my hero. Like I'm, I'm so fortunate to be my dad's son. But he answered a question and it, he, he broke down in tears, which is very rare for my dad. He's not an unemotionally available, like he's not emotionally unavailable at all, but it's just, it takes a lot for him to, to get to that point. He softened up now. He's got grandchildren, by the way, but he basically just said that the thing that really means the most to him is the impact I can have on children's parents because he remembers what it was like being in their situation with seemingly no help being completely lost and really having no hope because there was no one at that point in 1990 when I was born that lived beyond 30. And even then he didn't know them because, you know, media didn't exist. The internet was, you know, I don't know if it existed back then. I'm not going to, it maybe existed, but not in the way it does today. But he said that that's the thing that affects him the most and the thing he's the most proud of me for. And honestly, it's the thing that I take the most pride in the fact that I can give these parents who have been given an absolute blow to their lives because, you know, most people don't know about cystic fibrosis. I'm doing my best to increase the awareness of it. But when you get, when you have a child, and I can only imagine when you have a child and suddenly you think this child, you know, you spend all this time raising it, you know, the mum's carried it for nine months, then to be born and be told this child has cystic fibrosis, they immediately Google that and it's terrifying. But my goal is that when they Google it, my name comes up and hundreds and thousands of other people with cystic fibrosis come up. And it's that hope that I can give them that is, it means more to me than I could ever truly express. And the fact that I can give that to people is insane. Like that is something I never, ever expected to be able to give to people by just me living my life the way I think I should. Um, so yeah, that that's something I'm deeply, deeply appreciative of. And I get incredible messages from, from parents with cyst- uh, children with cystic fibrosis or even just their relatives. And I mean, a lot of them, it just brought me to tears because no one prepares you to receive a message like that. Like you're taught growing up when someone gives you something, you say, thank you. When you have done something wrong, you apologize. When someone tells you that you have given them hope for their child, there's no, oh, you say this in return. It's there's, there's nothing I could say that could ever truly match how it feels inside for me to, to get a message like that. Uh, so yeah, it's something I take, I take with a lot of pride, but there's a lot of 
a lot of weight that comes with that. Um, but I, I'm just doing my best. And I see a psychologist and stuff to, to make sure I am dealing with it in the best way possible. Um, something I'm a massive, massive advocate of, of looking after your, after your head. Doesn't matter how you look from down here. If this isn't right, then it doesn't matter. No, absolutely. And I mean, there's the one side of it getting those amazingly uplifting stories where someone's telling you you've made a fantastic difference. You've given them hope. Those, those, as you say, words don't exist that must, that, that, that you could be able to use to, to, to say thank you. What about the other side of it, though, Ben? Because you must be exposed on a very regular basis to the really, really sad side of this, of, of kids that you've known or, or, or young kids who haven't made it. That to me is, I, I can't really begin to get my head around how you must deal with that. And you, you've mentioned obviously professional help as well, but that must be an enormous thing to have to deal with on an on a almost daily basis. Yeah, thankfully it's not as often now, which is good. Um, I did have to step away from that world a little bit because of that, because it was affecting me so badly. Um, there's such a sense of survivor's guilt that comes with that news that you see like an eight-year-old boy who's just in a bed with tubes everywhere. He's got his toys around him. <sighs> yeah, there's definitely, it takes a lot from you. Um, and you just think, why, why, like, why, why not me? Like, why did I, why was I so lucky? Like, why? Yeah, it's, it's hard. Uh, so I did consciously after having a conversation with my mum actually and, and my wife, I had to step away from that world because the the benefits I was getting from it, the, the the you know the positive things I was getting from it were obviously incredible. But the impact that it has whenever you see a child or an adult or someone you've spoken to you know months before is just gone from the thing you have, it's really hard. It's really really hard to to forget about. And the way I the way I did this, and I, this isn't what I suggest anyone else. This is just how I did. I dealt with it. Whenever I got the news, I grieved for them. I grieved for their family. I may not have known them, but I there's like a kinship or like a brotherhood or sisterhood that comes with having this illness. You know what it feels like. You know how they're feeling. You know their fears. Their you know it, it's incredible. But you can very easily put yourself in their situation, their family situation. So the way I dealt with this was after a while, and again, I'm not saying this is the healthy thing to do or anything like that, but this is just how I dealt with it for a long time was I acknowledged it. I let it sit in me for as long as it needed to, that sadness and that grief and that survivor's guilt. And then I visually, this is a very visual thing for me, I almost reached into that memory and just picked it out, looked at it and was like, is, is this going to give me any, can I take anything from this? Can I take appreciation from this? Can I take gratitude from this? Can I take motivation from this? Is there anything I can take from this? If not, I just simply set it aside and I just tried to just continue on with my day, my week. And that's how I dealt with it. Again, I don't know if that's the healthy thing to do. I'm not saying that's the way people should do it, but that's how I dealt with it. Because if I didn't, it was just going to sit with me and it would just... It would not cause anything positive for me or the people around me. Um, so yeah, it's it's hard. It, it is it is 
it is really that hard. sounds like it sounds like an incredibly difficult thing to do and the way you've explained it beautifully there it's almost if you've looked at it very analytically what can i take from this memory i'll keep this everything else can go was that a very difficult process to get into that mentality because as i said the way you explained it, it's like well that yeah that makes perfect sense but i mean i'm actually executing that idea i imagine was incredibly challenging extremely extremely um some some of them obviously a lot closer i've you know maybe chatted to them before that that makes that process a lot harder because i can look back at conversations or the worst one this is the worst thing that i i've experienced is i will see someone has passed away within the cystic fibrosis community and i'll go and check you know messages on facebook or or instagram and i'll see that they've messaged me at some point but i've missed it and that 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 always sits with me really for a long time um and usually it's you know them reaching out just to say thank you for what i do or if they could you know what what do i eat how do i train you know all those things but yeah that's um that's something i've had to do as well i had to i did have to switch off messages on facebook on instagram because it was just too much. It was way too much for me to deal. And I was only, you know, I've been doing this since I was 21. My brain wasn't even fully developed at that point. Still, still probably isn't. But to be able to like deal with that stuff, it was, I wouldn't wish it on anybody to be able to, to, to be in those situations. And again, it's just, everything comes with the positives and negatives, like everything in life. But that was something that it takes time. I'm by no means, you know, how I described it, that's the ideal situation, you know, where I do take it out and look at it. And I, I very, vi- you know how I imagined it? You know, like a goldfish tank, you know, those little colored stones. I imagine when something like that happens, it drops in and then do you see it just, you know, making its way down to the bottom. I know it can stay there forever, but I choose to pick it out and just look at it and be like, right, is this something that is going to give me some emotional intelligence? Is it going to give me appreciation? All those things I was saying. If not, what can I take from it? And then I just set it outside. I just literally pick it up and set it outside of the goldfish bowl is my, is my brain and all my memories and and everything that's all my experiences. But again, much, just like a lot of things, much, much easier said than done. But yeah, you just have to try your best. For the overwhelming majority of people, they're not really exposed to death unless it's a very close family member uh, at a young age. Most people, they're probably, you know, in their 30s or 40s when they start, maybe that their parents have a, have a period of bad health where, where death and their own sense of mortality can begin to affect them. I imagine this is something that you've been, it's been on your radar or, or not kind of central to your thoughts for such a long time. Not only your, your own sense of mortality, but obviously the community as well of which you're so involved. I was hoping you could speak a little bit about, again, how is this something you manage? Is it something, again, you compartmentalize to the best of your ability or is it something that you're very willing to have conversations around? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm willing to talk. I think humans have been gifted the incredible ability to speak and especially men. It's a big thing for me is men need to speak more. Um, you're right. Like I was exposed to the concept of potentially a, an early death fairly, fairly early. Um, again, my parents protected me uh, from that fact for a, a long time, but there's only so much they can protect me from, you know, 
talking to the doctors at the hospital and so on and so forth. But there was one moment that I'll never forget. It's when I got hospitalized for a chest infection. I've been hospitalized twice for a chest infection. Now that's extremely low for someone with cystic fibrosis. Some people are in eight times a year getting IVs to get rid of chest. In fact, I've only ever been admitted twice. And again, touch wood. That's, that's all it ever is. But I remember being in the ward. I had a long line in my arm. So a long line is basically an IV drip that is one foot long. So they fed it into my left arm, right where my elbow crease is. That's this long tube that snakes up into my into my bloodstream. It basically ensures that the, the, IV, the antibiotics they're giving me gets in quickly. And I was in the hospital for about two weeks. I got out for a couple of days and then I got admitted back again because there was no improvement. But during the second half of the stint of the two weeks, I was lying in my in my room and throughout random periods of the day, I would hear this noise. It was it was haunting. Like it was it was a really unsettling noise. And I could not work out what it was. I was like, there's no rhythm to this. There's no metronome. There's no like so this time or this time. It was just so random. And again, when when you're in the CF ward, you've got separate rooms. Once the door closes, you're in your own little world because of cross-infection. People with cystic fibrosis can't mix because if I've got a bug that someone else doesn't have, they get it. It becomes very difficult to treat with antibiotics and so on. So you're in your own little bubble, essentially. I kept hearing this noise. And then one day, the, the nurse in the mornings was doing her rounds and she had my door open. And I could see across the hall, not quite straight across, but across. I could see her in the room with someone else. And I heard the noise and I was like, what the heck is that noise? And then I realized it was a young man coughing. It was the most, just, I can hear it in my head still. It just didn't sound like a noise that a human could produce. It sounded like, I know it sounds bad, but it sounded like a monster to me. It sounded like a noise a monster would make, like a noise your like friends would make to scare you. But even then, like I couldn't imagine how someone could produce that noise. And I saw him briefly just in the doorway. And again, it's in my head so clearly. He looked just old. He was completely, his body, his spine was completely rounded over. He was, his forearm was the same, you know, his entire arm was the same width all the way up. No muscle tone, nothing at all. And he was making this noise. It was, it was him coughing. And the nurse closed the door from his room, came across to my room. And I was terrified because I knew he had the same thing as me. And I just said to her, look, what age is that guy? As I was, I think I was either 18 or 21. I got hospitalized twice and I can never remember which time it was, but I, I was either 18 or 21. I'm pretty sure it was 18 though. And I said, what age is that guy? And she said, well, I'm not allowed to tell you, but if you walk past his door, We've got his name. Everyone had their names and their date of birth and any, you know, anything, any notes the, the doctors or nurses need to have. So she said, if you walk past his room, you'll be able to, you know, your date's on your door, right? Or your date of birth's on your door. And I was like, yeah. And she went, you know, he was born in 1988. I was born in 1990. So he was only two years older than me, two or three. And that was the biggest shock to me that I could have ever experienced. I said, not very, very few people get a glimpse into a potential future other than through their parents. 
or their grandparents, but even then there's a disconnect because of the age difference. I got a very close to home look at what a potential future of mine could be. Joe, it scared the hell out of me. Like it still scares me, but I looked at that situation and thought, right, what can I do? What, what are, what are the things that I can control that are going to slow down that process as much as I possibly can? That's again, I don't know where I got that mindset from. I don't know how that thought came to my head at such a young age, but damn, I'm so happy that that, that was the decision. That was the, the process that I dealt with that, you know, in that way, because it could have gone a very, very different way for me. Um, so yeah, mortality has always been something that's always been in the back of my head, but at the same time, you know, everyone else has a life expectancy. My life expectancy may not be as great as everyone else's, but you get hit by a bus tomorrow. You never know. So my approach to life has always been make the most of it as best as you can. Everyone's going to die at some point. It's the one thing we all have in common. You know, no one can relate to. Oh, there's Ollie making his bed on the car- on the floor there. Right. I think especially, Ben, though, for, for, for young men, whether it's toste- testosterone or ego, there's almost like a sense of, you know, invulnerability. Can, You're going to live forever. Like no, nothing's going to touch you. I'm really interested in that decision where you, you're exposed to something like that, that no one should ever have to go through and no one should ever have to see. Was it kind of a sliding doors moment where you think, I could just curl up and cry and, oh, you know, it's so unfair. It sounds as though that was never part of your thought process. It was never going to be that way. It was always going to be, I'm going to attack this and give it everything I've got to to make sure I'm doing everything that is in my control because not everything will be. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think if I've ever had that mindset of curl up and give up. I, I, I don't think I ever, it's never, never been an option for me. Now, obviously, there's been times where I'm like, this isn't fair and blah, blah, blah. But I think that's life's biggest lie, that life is fair. Like, I don't know where we've gotten this from, like Disney films or, you know, films in general, the media. That, that Oh, yeah, he's a nice person. He, he will get good things. Can I swear? By the way. Bullshit. Bullshit. There's no, like, life, life's not fair. Life is not fair. It, is, it sucks. It hurts. Complaining about it and moaning about it when you have control over your situation i get it i you know i i, I put myself in the position that i could do that i i think not many people would have a concern or an issue with me doing that because they'd probably be like yeah you know what that's fair for him to do that but i don't want to like it doesn't i'd be a horrible person to spend time with and i've got a limit you know everyone has a limited amount of time on this earth the last thing you want to do is be someone who someone doesn't want to spend time with because that's their approach to life. So no, I never ever had the mindset of, oh, I'll just give up or, you know what? I'm in for a short time. I may as well just have as much fun, destructive fun as possible. Obviously I've done some stupid shit in the past, but nothing that's going to be detrimental to my health in a way that wasn't measured. It's always been measured chaos for me. Um, But yeah, I definitely felt sorry for myself, but I quickly snap out of that because what's it going to do? It's not going to do anything. It's not going to solve my situation. No one's going to come and save me. I can do what I can do and that's it. A lot of people will kind of go through life and and maybe not say the things they really want to say or be the person that they know they are because they don't want to, they don't feel comfortable putting themselves or exposing themselves. 
could you talk a little bit Ben about some of the perhaps positives maybe isn't the right word but some of the some of the, the greater life experiences you've had because of CF and you mentioned talking about you know asking your parents or getting your parents to ask questions that you would never dreamed of asking them I'd imagine a lot of people watching this who maybe have lost a parent for instance go I wish I'd asked them that I wish I'd told them that has it given you any kind of I guess feeling of do you know what I'm going to ask the I'm going to ask the questions I'm going to tell someone how I feel does it give you a sense of not necessarily freedom but just an attitude of I'm going to live the life that I want to live yeah 100% I mean I I think that my cystic if you took my cystic fibrosis off me I wouldn't be the same man I am today by any stretch of the imagination it's given me so much more than I could have ever even imagined but because it's not like the cystic fibrosis give me that, I worked for that. Like I put myself in positions that maybe someone else without this, or maybe the version of me without it wouldn't have done it. You know, I I wanted to be a director. So I went and studied film. I didn't try and do A-levels because I had no interest in them. There was nothing positive for me. I was like, right, I want to be a director. I'm going to go and study films for four years and... Then I went and did that. I got into that career, got some incredible memories of that. I then realized that my health was a massive, like a massive priority for me. So then I transitioned into being a coach and again, best thing I ever did. I mean, some of the situations that have been orchestrated or, or my cystic fibrosis has been a part of, I mean, I've, I've got, I had the opportunity. I've had the opportunity to cross an ocean on a paddleboard. I've been invited out to LA to the, the the Rocks TV show to audition for that. I've been able to raise, you know, so much awareness for this condition. I've walked 65,000 steps for charity. I've done a TV show. I've done a few TV shows, which is mad to say. It's absolutely crazy to say that. As a, I just can't believe it. It's still when I say that, I'm like, who the hell's this guy? There's so many things. I've got to meet so many people. I've got to help so many people that, yeah, like I definitely have a different view of life than I'd say a lot of people do. And I'm massively appreciative of that. And my goal, my, my hope, not my goal. My hope is that that rubs off on other people in a good way of like life is short, brutally short. Just do what you can to make sure that you enjoy your life. No, you're not just living. Now, again, this is, this is advice I'm giving myself. I'm not always this way. Like I'm always, I'm, as I said, I'm a normal person, but I definitely have the ability to tap into that mindset. I think potentially maybe easier than some other people do because of my circumstances. Um, yeah, I mean, some of the stuff I've got, I've had the privilege of being able to do because of my situation and my hard work and, and what I've done. <sighs> Amazing. But, but you mentioned with the documentary that you made, it still took that happening for some questions to be put towards your parents, right? You still wouldn't have asked them that. So I'm really interested in A, why perhaps you hadn't had those conversations with your parents and advice for anyone watching this. You know, is it a case of we just need to talk more, maybe especially men, but we are we are all completely having a set number of encounters with everyone else, right? There's, there's a finite number of them. I'd love to get your take on just how we can maximize more of those encounters and, and make the most of our interactions with other people. I think the key is, Again, I'm not I'm I'm not in a position of authority in any of this stuff. I'm just telling you what my opinion is on this. But 
I think people just need to be a little bit more vulnerable, especially men. There's such a stigma that men are like tough and we don't speak and we're silent. The strong, silent type, that's literally a thing that people say. The strong, silent type. Conversations can lead to some incredible things, but only if typically it takes one person to just be in a position that's maybe you have to get rid of strengths and weaknesses. You just have to be just almost just open up your chest and be like, this is how I'm feeling. What do you think? And just you showing that vulnerability and that relatability as well, because everyone has these thoughts. Everyone has these thoughts. It's just someone, I'm not calling myself brave here. I'm very always like dancing around other stuff. If someone needs to, someone needs to be brave enough to be like, right, this is how I actually feel. This is not some act. This is not, you know, this is how I feel about this situation. What do you think? And then that just that slight crack of the door being open sometimes is enough for someone else to be like, you know what, actually, yeah, I feel like that too sometimes. And for guys, like that's a big, big thing. You know, just being able to speak to someone else who, and they're not, you're not there to solve their problems. You're just there to listen. Just the amount of times that I have just spoken to people and they've just talked, and I've been like, cool, how do you feel now? And they're like, I feel great. You're not there to solve problems. You're just there to listen and just let them talk and empathize when you need to empathize and, you know, just understand and be, and be an ear to someone who, who needs that. But it does take someone to initially open that door for a lot of people. Um, so the conversations I have with my parents, you know, going back to that, like I would never ask my parents those type of things because it just, it just never, you know, it's weird, but I just never go to my parents and go, what do you think when I was born? Do you think I was going to die at 20? What do you think? Like, that's just not a conversation I would have with my parents. But because of this this documentary, the director was like, we're going to ask these questions. Now, if you're not comfortable asking them or you're not comfortable, you know, that's fine. But I just said to them, look, I'm, I'm comfortable with anything. Whatever questions you have to ask, and maybe uncomfortable at the time, but I, I'll, I'll get through it. I'm not going to die from a question being asked. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, honestly, my best advice is just, be willing to be slightly vulnerable because that vulnerability could open the door for a conversation that could potentially save someone else's life. You know, we talk about like, I know we're going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but like suicide rates in men, de- devastating. If you think that a conversation, just texting a mate, texting your parents, whatever it is, could could have been potentially a reason for that person to not leave this earth. Let's face it, everyone on this earth the earth is a lot better for having them on it. The vast majority of people, not everyone, obviously, but the vast majority of people, the world is better with them in it. So if you have to have a conversation that makes you feel a bit uncomfortable for a bit, I guarantee you, if you knew that was the end result or you never knew that was the end result, I guarantee if someone then told you, yeah, that conversation made a big difference, I guarantee you'd run it back and do the same thing every single time. I was really hoping to get your thoughts, Ben, on why you're still going after these kind of high octane, high adrenaline pursuits, like pushing yourself outside of a comfort zone. I'm talking about what I saw of you kind of on the high wire across, it looked like a Scottish mountain. The drop was incredible. Yeah. What was still driving you to do these incredibly kind of stressful out of your comfort zone activities? And secondly, what what do you think most people would have to gain from pushing themselves outside of their comfort zone a little bit more? Are there kind of life lessons we can learn by challenging ourselves and and putting ourselves out there? One hundred percent. Well, one, I was paid to do it, so that helps. 
I mean, that takes the edge off. Right? That, that definitely. I mean, to be fair though, Joe, I, I would have done that for free. I really would have. I, I kept, you know, I kept saying, like, I, I said to the crews, I can't believe I'm getting paid for this. This is incredible. But the reason why I think it's important is because people are so much more capable than they realize. But without testing themselves, they're never going to find that out. Like if, if I never went to the gym, I would never find out how strong I could get. If I never sprinted, I would never find out how fast I could go. All these things that people are, and I understand, like we have this idea of, oh, I'm not going to be good at this thing. So I'm not going to do it. I don't know where that mindset has come from. This arrogance of this thing I've never done before. I'm not, I, I need to be great at this or other, otherwise I'm not going to do it. My mindset is I'm going to try as many things as I can because I know that if I keep doing it, I will get better. But if I don't try it, I'm not going to get better. And honestly, the the sensation of a, like of just accomplishment for me doing even just the the slacklining. You know, I learned how to slackline in a day, in in just over an hour. But I, I again, the approach I took was one of I'm not going to be good at this. In fact, I'm going to be terrible at this. So anything above that is a win for me. And I was just committed anytime I fell off and was, was, you know, trying to get my, my body, my natural instinct was to get angry. I laughed. I was like, what are you doing? Why are you getting angry? Like, why are you getting angry at this thing? You've never done this thing before. Why would you get angry at this? Don't be an idiot. So that's the approach I had of just, I, you cannot expect to be good at something you've never done before. So go into it fully expecting to be terrible. Anything other than that is a bonus. And I think more people need to push themselves out of their comfort zone simply because the feeling of pride and the feeling of being proud of yourself is irreplaceable. You could not, I mean, watching that documentary back, which I'm extremely proud of, the way it ended was exactly how I wanted it at the end. You know, I came into these, this highliner's life, you know, the highlining is the, is the, um, the thing I was doing on this documentary. And basically it's, as Joe explained, it's walking on a very, very thin piece of rope across, um, two fairly high up parts. That's where the high line comes from. But I was coming into these people's world who were very, very passionate about it. The last thing I wanted to do was me to turn up and be like, what you do isn't that impressive. I can do it in a day. I did not want that. I wanted to give it my best go. And as long as they, who had, you know, this is their passion, this is their love. This is something they had dedicated their time to, their very precious time to. As long as I impressed them, with what I was doing, I was happy and they were beyond thrilled at what I was doing. And I was like, cool. These people who, this is their, this is their thing. If they can look at me completely outsider and be like, yeah, he did a good job. I'm happy. Even if that meant me just, you know, chickening out and not getting anywhere near the thing because they were telling me that there's people who've been doing slacklining, which is just the low stuff between like two trees. So there's like a full on chaos going outside here. Um, they, they had people who had been doing that for 10 years, slacklining, who would never even touch a highline. And they said, the fact that you just turned up one day and just slid over a, you know, that line that was 60 meters up, by the way, Joe, 60 meters, when you explain it to someone, they're like, it's not that high. Because when you think about 60 meters, you think lengthways, as in like from point A would be, you know, if I said, oh, it's 60 meters up the road, you'd be like, I could jog there in five seconds. When it goes vertical up to down, Dear Lord, it is it is a whole different ballgame. Um, but yeah, the, the, the fact that I did that, the fact that I pushed myself when I really didn't want to, it gave me so many 
it gave me so much more than it took. And I think that's what it comes down to. It's, it's really just a trade-off of, right, what is this going to take for me? And when you really think about it, it's going to take time, yeah, but you're doing something that's fun. You're doing something that you could potentially get really good at and take a lot of a, a lot from. So then when you start thinking of it like that, it's like, well, I've got nothing to lose here. I've got everything to gain, nothing to lose. I'm coming into this with zero expectations of myself. You can't fail. I could not fail. Whatever I did, I couldn't fail. And that was the mindset I took into it. There were three things I took away from from watching that. And I feel that it, that's where almost everyone else is going wrong in terms of you didn't expect success straight away. You redefined what success was. It wasn't it wasn't being able to do it better than anyone else or even getting it was simply the fact that you'd push yourself out of your comfort zone and attempted it. And and third, you weren't seeking external validation. It was I'm I'm satisfied with what I've given here. And that for me is it. And I feel that a lot, maybe because of social media or the world we live in, a lot of people want success instantly. Yeah. They're fixated on on the destination, not the journey. And they're only happy if a stranger notices them and appreciates it. Do you feel like I ever kind of would you take that away from it as well as maybe where some people maybe aren't living the full, fit, happy life they are because they've they've misdefined what that what that should be? Yeah, it's something I talk to my clients a lot about. Is people are so focused on the outcome and they don't focus on the process. If you focus on the process, the outcome will happen. It can't not happen. And when you accept the fact that you're not going to be great at something at the start, and it's going to, you're going to fail. And even then I've redefined failure as something that doesn't really exist because to me, if you fail at doing so, let's say for for instance, someone is trying to get more active and they, they say, right, I'm going to go to the gym three times a week. Cool. Brilliant. I would suggest you do two because that's, that's something you can definitely do. But if you don't make that third session, instead of going, I failed, you look at it and go, why did I not get that? What did I do wrong? What did I do differently on those days that I did get to the gym on the day that I didn't get to the gym? And then you can look back at it and be like, well, okay, I now have information from that. So that's not failure. You've learned something. You cannot say you've learned something and it's a failure. So again, I'm, I'm trying to redefine with the people I work with and as many people as I can that failure doesn't exist if it's not the way you look at things. I don't look at things as a failure. I look at things as, okay, I learned X, Y, and Z from that. If I learned anything from it, it's not a failure. But I understand how scary that can be. And again, I... You know, I hope that I'm not coming across as oh, I'm holier than thou because I do it. I, I was terrified. I didn't really particularly want to do that. When I saw that line, I was like, I'd really rather just be part. In fact, I think I said that in the in the documentary. I'd rather be part of the crew right now and not be the, the person that everyone's focusing on. But, you know, it's, yeah, you're right. Like it, there's this need for instant gratification. And again, I understand that because that's the way our brain's wired. Our brain wants these dopamine hits. We're wired to do that. And our entire society is now leaning very much towards that instant gratification. But there is nothing better. And I can say this from experience. There's nothing better than looking back over time, a long period of time, being like, I'm so proud of what I did. Not yesterday, but years ago. Like I look back at my 16-year-old self who started training in the gym. And I'm so proud of that decision that he made because it, it got me to where I am today. Now, did I get jacked in like... One day of training? No. 10 days of training? No. 10 years of training? No. 20. It's taken me 20 years to get to where I am. But because people click on my profile and see me exactly for who I am today, they just assume that I've always been like this and I have not. I was explaining this to a young guy in the gym the other day and he's like, oh, you're in great shape. And I was like, yeah, well, I always, I wasn't always like, I was too small to be picked for rugby teams. I was too, I was looked over for everything. 
But I use that. I use that as, right, this is the reason why I'm going to do what I'm going to do because I want to prove to myself that I'm capable of far more. You know, getting the getting the, uh, the head nods from the, the slackliners and highliners was great. But honestly, if, if even if they had said, oh, yeah, it's not quite what I expected of them, that's all I could have given. I literally gave that everything I possibly could have given. So even if they hadn't said that, which they are all very, very lovely people, you know, shout out to all of them. They were really, really cool. Made that an entire experience far more enjoyable than it could have been. Like it was just incredible. And they made it more enjoyable than I, than it could have been. Um, but yeah, even if they had said, nah, I didn't do that well, I'd be like, cool. Well, I've never, I've never done this stuff before. So that's what I expected. <laughs> so yeah, it's, um, yeah. The instant gratification, I understand it. Everyone does, but that delayed, you know, I've worked for this. I've sweated for this. I have put time into this and I've not given up. That consistency is a much, much greater, slower burning sense of pride than you'll ever get from an instant gratification. It's, it's almost like I think a lot of people have that fear of failure and they don't want to take that first step because they're afraid of, of what it might look like. Whereas, it, as you say, if you can put that to one side and focus on or reframing, it, it's not a failure. You've never done it before. I mean, everyone who runs a marathon, first time you're going to get a PB, right? It's the best It's the best way. Once you've done it, you've proved you can do it and that's where you can go on. It's just making sure that commitment in the first place. You've obviously, you've done so much in, in your fitness career and in your life already, Ben. What's what's next? What's left? What what are your big ticks that you need to do? Is in terms of CF awareness, in time, in terms of you know research, in terms of any kind of uh, lobbying you can do to to make more resource available for for research and, and and treatment. What what is still on your on your to do list that has to be ticked off? Season two of uh, of Driving Force, <laughs> which which is in the works, which is amazing. Um, Honestly, I, I just want to have fun. I want to have fun. I want to help as many people as I can. I want to continue doing what I'm doing. What I'm doing. I want to get better at what I'm doing. I want to just have a, a life that is full of incredibly fun memories. Not necessarily even fun memories, just memories. I just want to be like that's that's the one thing I've worked out from getting exposed to so many people, so many different cultures, so many different ways of living. All those things. When it comes down to it, humans just love stories. It's about, you know, you sit with someone. The reason why someone is interesting is because of what they've been through. The stories they can tell you. And that's something I noticed very, very quickly. I was like, oh my word. So it's really just, at the end of the day, stories that you can tell people. And what then they can take from those stories. Like, yeah, I did this thing that led me to here. And that's because I did this. You know, I pushed myself outside of my comfort zone. And it led to this incredible. Now, it may have not immediately had a payoff. But because I did this, that then introduced me to this person who then you know, perfect example of this. I had a message on Facebook or no Instagram, sorry, a comment on one of my Instagram posts from a girl called Becky, a woman called Becky, sorry, not a girl, a woman called Becky. And she said, oh, would you like to do public speaking, more public speaking for cystic fibrosis? And I said, yeah, of course, that would be amazing. I would love to do that. A great way for me to spread awareness. And again, public speaking is one of those things that I was terrified of, but I got better and better as, as I did more things like this. And she was like, yeah, that'd be, you know, that'd be amazing. Have you got anything, idea, or any ideas? And I was like, no. And she said, well, actually, there's a there's an event over in Philadelphia that, that I've been taking part of for 20 years called Great Strides. It's an American uh, cystic fibrosis thing they've been doing for years. Obviously, COVID had a, had a bit of a pause on it. But long story short, she had a best friend growing up called Brett, 
who passed away, unfortunately, from cystic fibrosis at age 20. Now, his mum, Debbie, she then jumped on a call after I'd spoken to Becky and said to me, right, I want to meet you. My son passed away from this illness. I want to see what this new medication has been doing. I just want to meet you. Is that okay? And I was like, yeah, that's cool. She flew me and my wife out first class to this this event, this this CF event. I got to meet people that I would never meet. I got to have conversations with people I would never get to have conversations with. I got to meet a parent who's been following me for seven years and her hands were shaking like a leaf when she came over to say hello to me with her two kids. Like her two kids have cystic fibrosis. They were there obviously, but she was like, this is like a dream come true to meet you. So I gave her as much information as I could. I filmed a little video for her kids uh, saying hello to them and tell them to listen to their parents whenever, whenever they're talking about the medications. But what I'm saying is like, that came from such a small thing of me just being like, yeah, just being open to something. And that's given me, I mean, honestly, that time in Philadelphia, and then we went to Florida after that, we got to go to Disney World, we got to do all this amazing stuff. That's a memory that I will have forever because of one conversation. I could have easily ignored that that comment because there's I get so many comments. I try to respond to as many of them as possible, but it would have been so easy for me to just have not seen that message. But because of that, Something like that happened. And yeah, life is incredibly random, but you have to put yourself in those situations that allow for that randomness to, to you know, exist. Thank you for listening to the Unfiltered Podcast. If you've got this far, I hope you won't mind if I ask you to leave a five-star review when you get the chance. We'd really appreciate it. And don't forget you can access all of our exclusive Unfiltered video interviews and features at unfilteredonline.com and the Unfiltered Extra YouTube channel. See you next time.